Hey, it's me. <laughs> Hi, welcome to the Pete the Planner Show. I'm your host, Pete the Planner. As you will learn today on this episode of the Pete the Planner Show, I'm on two hours sleep. Uh, to help get through this is my good friend, my coworker, my uh, sharer of a namesake, Damian Dunn. Hello, Dame. Hello, Pete. So here was the plan. I was like, you know, I'm going to go speak in Des Moines on Wednesday, then fly to Phoenix, mm -hmm. speak in Phoenix on Thursday, mm -hmm. and then take a red eye home so I could be here for the show and uh, soccer games for the kids for this evening. So I executed on that plan. What I did not account for was that since time has passed and I am now an older man post-pandemic, uh, I cannot sleep on a plane like I used to be able to. So I'm running on uh, I'm running on fumes, my friend. So uh, nothing like a good radio show where the only thing getting me through is your smile, Dame, and the cooled, harsh taste of Miguel. So thank God for Miguel. Thank God for you. Hello, Dame. How many of those you got sitting on standby just off camera? Uh, that would be that would be a heart attack, very frankly. Uh, so okay. uh, I only recommend one one a day. You, those are rookie numbers. You got to pump those up. I know. Hello, everyone. Rick Swink. Good to be with you again. Danza, hi. Hope you're well. Hope everyone's well. All right. So, um, Dame, I am not in a hurry today. There's nothing <laughs> uh, There's nothing hurried about my experience today. But I will note, I'm fighting a different clock, and that is the clock of energy today. So, um, I think we'll probably just uh, vominos, if you know what I mean. Okay. Uh, I will tell you one brief story before we get started. So, Tales of the Road. I'm in Phoenix last night, and I am at the gate to get on my plane to L.A. so then I can take the red eye home from L.A. And I'm standing, getting ready to get on the plane, and this guy walks by, and he looked incredibly familiar. Hmm. Like, so much so that it, it just, like, it, he looked so familiar, it almost didn't make sense as to what was happening. <laughs> And it turns out it was Aaron Paul who was the actor that played Jesse Pinkman on Breaking Bad. So he's the younger guy on Breaking mm -hmm. Bad. So it's sort of weird when you see a celebrity or someone you've you've watched their show and you've watched it for seasons and and like he's in front of you and it's like, am I currently in Breaking Bad? Like it's a very weird thing because uh, he looks. Like, exactly the same the character looks like him there's no prosthetics or anything yeah. like that and so he's on my plane and he's sitting a row in front of me the entire flight people were coming up from the back to talk to him the lady next to me on the flight pulls out her ipad and starts watching breaking bat various people are like just coming up to him and it made me so sad, but other than the fact that he was incredibly nice and gracious to everyone, he was like shaking people's hands or bowing his head in reverence. And it was, it, and it just, it, it, my theory on being like a hardcore celebrity, like, like a really popular person like that has got to be, it's just got to be hell. The fame has just got to be hell. I mean, it's late at night in Phoenix, dude doesn't have sunglasses or a hat or a mask. It's just him. And people are coming up to him non-stop non-stop and i was like i i think it's interesting to have seen him and i'm i'm talking about it here on our show but man people people really really took the chance to talk to him do you have thoughts on that whole like 
do you talk to someone like that given that everyone else does like what's your vibe here no i that would be uncomfortable for me let alone the person that i'm talking to i mean they're just individuals i mean you know this pete stardom hasn't changed you at all you just is the same person that you were as uh, you were in in high school probably but only a little bit better jokes so yeah. uh no i i i mean if if it's natural and there's a reason to uh to to have a small conversation with somebody sure but am i going to go out of my way to talk to somebody that i don't know star or otherwise probably not in my my uh, wheelhouse well you know based on how much i fly i tend to get upgraded to first class not because i'm buying first class but because i have a lot of airline miles right. so i'm in first class he's in first class and people are just coming to use the bathroom in first class so they can walk back and talk to him mm -hmm. like right it, it was just very odd anyway so that's the only interesting thing that's happened to me in the last uh, 48 hours. Anybody throw off any good one-liners as they were walking by just to try and get a laugh out of them? Uh, probably. I had my headphones on uh. because I, I can't uh, tolerate any of that. So let's do a show. We actually, I, I'm, I'm, I have to say, I'm kind of excited about all three topics today. I find them to be interesting. Uh, and uh, let's see what we can do with them. And let's see if I can remember them when I start the show. So <laughs> it's with that that I need to set my clock. You ready to go, buddy? Yes. All right. In three, two, one. This week on the Pete the Planner Show, we answer your money questions. Here's how the show works. You email us askpete at petetheplanner.com. That's askpete at petetheplanner.com. And here's what we will do. Sometimes we'll just leave your emails sitting in the, the box for months or, or, or we'll answer them. Uh, and beyond that, what we'll do is we'll bring our own topics to this here financial radio show. And by we, I mean Damian Dunn, Vice President of Advice at Your Money Line. Hello, Dame. Hello, Pete. Good to be with you. Fair warning to all of our people here today. I'm on two hours of sleep, coming off of a red eye, uh, and uh, of which Ted this morning said, how was your pink eye? Which mm. I think he sort of missed how all of that works. Alas, here we are uh, mustering enough strength to bring people everything they need to know about their financial lives. Dame, I saw the headline the other day that read, adjustable rate mortgages demand doubles as interest rates hit the highest since 2009 and this is disconcerting to me because number one the adjustable rate mortgage is among my least favorite financial products and so when the demand for it spikes at a period of time in which there is thought that interest rates are going to steep keep going up uh help me understand how this is not a horrible piece of news that has popped through i not only are interest rates projected to go up but pete I think it's reasonable to think that maybe home values go down yeah, in the coming I mean, we, period of we, time. We never want to hit the, uh, it's a perfect storm of housing. But this is a problem. Can you explain to those who don't understand what an adjustable rate mortgage is? Yeah. So uh, let's say you uh, want to buy that that shiny house on the corner that uh, has the white fence and a nice, uh, nice porch. And you just don't have quite enough money to make the payment on a traditional mortgage. Well, what are you going to do? Well, you know what? You might be able to find a little bit better rate, an adjustable rate mortgage, an ARM. They'll give you a, a better rate, and you'll make that payment over uh, maybe a three-year period or a five-year period. But that interest rate is going to adjust at some point. It, it could be at different periods of time. It could be at the very end of the period. But uh, that interest rate is going to find its level with what interest rates are in the future. 
and you may not be able to afford that payment then either. Uh, people often get into these products to think, you know what, I can't now, but I will in a few years. I'll be able to afford that normal mortgage in a few years, or I'm going to you know, move on to a different house and I don't want to put principal into it. I just want to basically... I'm sorry, that was a different product that I was thinking of there for, for just a second. Interesting. Uh, another, uh, another favorite product of ours. Um, it's a way to afford a house that you may not otherwise be able to afford in a more conventional mortgage product. Not a great idea. Yeah, that's what concerns me here is not only are people making a bet that three years from now interest rates will be lower, uh, they're ignoring the fact that their payment will naturally be higher because of property tax increases because of insurance increases. And don't forget, as you just mentioned, people will also use this artificially low rate to push the limits of what they can afford. It's, a, it's just a bad idea. Um, how do you think housing prices play into this? Because I agree. I mean, it is conceivable that three years from now that housing prices are exactly the same as to what they are now or that they've slowed down uh, a little bit. What, what do you, how do you think that plays in? Um, well, first my, my assumption or my guess on what housing prices are going to do, uh, over the next three years, I, I would guess in many markets, they're lower than what they are right now. I think demand dries up, interest rates go higher and we, we see, a, a coming to <laughs> coming to terms with, with some of this inflation that we've had in, in housing prices. How is this going to play into, um, the rates that people choose or the, the mortgage products that people choose in their um, home buying selection process, people still have this um, this desire to be homeowners. And maybe not as much as they did um, in years past, but those people that want to be homeowners are going to try and find any way they can get their foot in the door. And if that means that they're going to take on potentially uh, risky mortgages or um, you know not, not as advantageous or, or consistent uh, payments mortgages um they're gonna do it and we we've seen it before we saw it i gosh i remember mid 2000s people were telling me arms the only thing you should be doing right now arms the only thing you should be doing right now and uh, no no it's not settle up uh, be happy with consistency of your mortgage payment don't try and outsmart the room on this the average contract interest rate for 30-year fixed rate mortgages with conforming loan balance increased to 5.37% uh, from 5.2%. And that is the highest rate since 2009. I think another angle to this, and I want to be careful here and, and respectful, um, I can't imagine being a mortgage expert and recommending an arm to someone right now. Because it's one thing for a consumer to seek out an arm. Uh, it's another thing for a, a lender or a mortgage broker to say, you know, I know you're struggling to afford based on these interest rates. Why don't we take a look at an adjustable rate mortgage? Because they're trying to get the deal done. And the way that a person would frame that is they're saying, well, I'm helping the person accomplish their goal mm -hmm. to buy a home. And, and to be fair, anytime you're talking about financing anything, whether it's a college education, a new car purchase, a home purchase, the goal isn't to make the purchase. That's not the, the goal. The goal is to make a purchase that makes sense. And sometimes a salesperson involved in financing will remove themselves from that duty that I'm bestowing upon them to help a person understand if the deal itself makes financial sense. And then that's how they're able to not feel culpable mm -hmm. for, for what's going on. I, I'll say this, Dame. 
5.37%, if we just take a very deep breath, that's still a really good interest rate. I yeah. mean, it's a it's a shockingly good interest rate. I, I think the last time I refinanced, it was last year, I think I'm on a 10-year now, at 2.75. Now, that's just a stupid interest rate. Um, my first interest rate on a home uh, back in 2000 was 8%. Ooh. Yeah, uh, I didn't have very well-established credit as a 22-year-old with a college degree one month out of school, but I had an 8% loan. 5.37% uh, is not bad. And in fact, I think as interest rates rise, that will help cool off the market, the housing market in a, in a good way. You know, one thing I don't know that you may know the answer to, and you could just look like the genius this morning. Well, unlikely, but go ahead. Are there different commission rate schedules for arms versus conventional loans? You know, I don't know the answer to that, but and I'm going to make a very uninformed guess. I, you got to think so. Yeah. Y you got to think so um, because the bank is protected. Yeah. It's all about risk. And so the risk falls. Well, I guess the other side of that is if interest rates go lower. Hmm. Trying to think through this. Not a good thing to try to think through <laughs> on the amount of sleep that I've had. I'll note this, and the, you know what we're talking about. Really, um, next segment is the pending idea of a recession, mm -hmm. and so it's one thing to uh, choose an adjustable rate mortgage because interest rates are rising. It's a whole other thing to do that absent the idea that we might be coming towards a recession. And it's also worth noting: a recession is a solution to a problem. No one likes hearing that. No one likes it. It is every time I say it, I cringe myself, but it is true. A recession solves an overheated economy. And that's what's about to happen in my estimation. We're going to talk a lot about that on the next segment. But I, I'm willing to give a very big sweeping generalization to end this segment. I would recommend an arm, an adjustable rate mortgage to one to 2% of potential buyers of a home and probably no one else. And if you're thinking, oh, well, I'm likely in that one to 2%, uh, no, you're not. <laughs> I, I think it is a really bad risk decision to get an adjustable rate mortgage. And if that's what you have to do to afford a home, you can't afford the home and you take that in light of what's about to happen in terms of the economy, it is a bad decision that we would hope that you will prevent yourself from making. I agree. I, I don't think there's any... Um, any interest or any reason right now to for people to jump into an arm? I like fixed, to fix or any, nothing. Any interest coming up after the break? Uh, are we headed towards a recession? That's next. I'm Pete the Planner. Any interest? That was good. Was that intentional? No, no. It's just my natural abilities coming through. You be have you a good way? What's your week been like? Busy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's been. Interesting, exciting, stressful. I mean, I'm losing my hair. I don't know if you can tell, uh, but it's uh, it's been uh, been fun. I like that. Uh, I told a slightly inappropriate joke to uh, kick off the uh, my gig yesterday in Phoenix. I was speaking to the plan plan sponsor Council of America, so it's very large businesses. Um, it's a conference where they talk about how they can make their 401k better. But I mean, the likes of like Disney, Viacom, big, big Microsoft companies yeah. there. 
And so, of course, you know, I, I go up on, I'm on a stage. I have a microphone. Lights are on. It's hard to just go, oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> My presentation is on like, I, I step onto the stage. You got a mic. There's lights. You, you just got to have an opener, right? And? Well, it's an old one that I, I probably told in the show, uh, but it was the perfect audience. So let me share my joke with you. Uh, I went up and I said, um, I can't tell you how good it is to, to not be on a Zoom call with all of you right now. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, we're here at a conference eating hard candies. <laughs> like people are excited. And I said, you know, conferences are happening. I'm, I'm back on the road. I, and, and it's nice. You know, I, one of my favorite things to do. So now I'm sort of going into joke mode. Hello. One of my favorite things to do is to, when I'm on the road, is to sit at a, a hotel bar and have my dinner and just people watch. And since during the pandemic, I finished Netflix and Hulu, what else am I going to do? And people watch is the ultimate reality show. So I was in New Orleans last week and uh, I was at a hotel and having some crawfish. And uh, I see these two people start to talk at the bar a couple stools down and they clearly did not know each other prior to this, but they were certainly getting to know each other so much so that I was beginning to text my wife updates on this new drama unfolding in front of us. I'm going to call a quick timeout. So this is me really going through it just like this yeah. to this group of this room where I'm giving a financial presentation, by the Perfect. way. Perfect. I'm comfortable with this. I am fully comfortable with it. But and, and it's an interesting enough buildup that people are like, okay, well, where's Buy this in. going? Yeah. And so I said, and things were, they were, let's just say they were getting closer. And this is not the first time I've seen these sorts of things, being on the road, being a business traveler. But it escalated to the point that the guy stood up very boldly and he said, just above a whisper, what do you say we get out of here and go make some bad decisions? And of course, I panicked. I panicked. It's like, they're going to go upstairs and take out 401k loans. Yeah. <laughs> There's the joke. Yeah. Hmm. Did it uh, get the desired reaction? Perfect room. It's the, sometimes the, the perfect joke meets the perfect room. And that was that. When else are you going to use that joke better than that? Oh, no. That was perfect. I'm, and you had them in the palm of your hand for the rest of the presentation. Oh, I did. It, was, uh, it's, it's, it is kind of good to back on the road. You and I were talking before we went to air today. Like, What's weird is two years have clearly passed since I've been on the road a lot. Um, and I'm now not 42. I'm 44 years old. It's funny, man. I, I feel like the age of being on the road, being able to take a red eye, being able to sleep in any bed. Like, I, oh, man, I, I'm coming out of the recession, not at, uh, in fighting shape, if you will. You have to have uh, Mrs. Planner just let you go sleep at some random hotels every other uh, weekend for a while just to get, get back into game shape. I think as long as they took the kids, she wouldn't mind. All right, Dan, let's talk recessions. Hello, everyone. Red has joined us. Uh, hello, Lee, with a great joke. Look at that. Look at, we'll even put it up there for him. I want to make a camouflage joke. I just can't find any. G'day. All right, you ready to go? Yeah. In three, two, one. Back on the Pete the Planner show. Dame, you know, I think a recession's coming. I don't, wow. I don't, I don't want to, I don't, yeah, no, I, I feel like it's coming. Uh, and I want to talk through it and we're going to talk through who we think it will impact the most. And I want to share with you why I think it's going to happen and, and why it, ultimately it's a good thing, but as we're living it, it's going to stink. 
Okay. So uh, first I'm going to go back to this idea that when you have a recession, it is often a solution to a problem. The problem right now is that inflation is so incredibly high and the Fed is trying to get control so that consumer prices don't keep escalating to the point of um, the economy crashing because of that. No one can afford anything. So what they're going to do is they're going to raise interest rates, which will slow down the economy because businesses will not borrow money uh, and make bigger investments to grow the business. So then theoretically, you're going to see consumer demand fall a little bit, um, which theoretically should begin to solve the supply chain issues Mm -hmm. and it will solve the inflation issues over time. But the challenge here is because there's been this temporary inflation for so long, now that it's gone on for what eight months, do you think we've been in like a really nasty inflation environment for eight, nine months? Yeah, we were talking about it at the end of last year. Yeah. So, so what has happened is that has sort of gone on too long. So it's going to take a while to uh, re-steer the ship away from inflation. So what's going to happen is the Fed is going to keep putting in interest rate rise uh, raises, uh, which will contract the economy. The economy will not produce as much output. A, a recession is simply a contraction. It's when uh, a gross domestic uh, product uh, falls. And instead of uh, grows. And so that is a recession. And it's coming because it has to, because we have to solve this inflation problem. And then the key here is how big of a recession is it? Is it one, two, three quarters? Uh, or is it, are we going to fall into some level of a depression? That, that is a escal- uh, like an escalating term, clearly. I don't think we're going to get to the point where we stack a bunch of quarters on and we're in the midst of a depression. But I think we're going to have a mild recession that's going to cool off the economy. That is my opinion. I'm curious if, if you line up any different on that. I don't see any way that we're going to avoid a technical recession, two quarters with negative uh, growth. We've already had one. Uh, it wasn't huge. And I, based on what I'm reading, you know, some... Some economists would say they're not really all that worried about it because of some of the factors that go into calculating that number. But I don't see any way that we don't find another negative quarter or that we're in the midst of another negative quarter right now. The the one concern that I have, well, one of the concerns that I have in this area is that when we're talking about changing interest rates and trying to slow things down, those are macroeconomic policy changes. Macro policies usually take 12 to 18 months to really see how they shake out. It's not something where they announce it and then all of a sudden we know what the final result is going to be two weeks, four weeks later. It takes some time for everything to find its level and really know what we're playing by. So if if the Fed comes out and either aggressively or just incrementally increases rates over a number of meetings, it may be a while before we figure out what the, the, the end result of those changes are. So do, do they potentially overshoot and, and and raise rates too far and then they have to you know yo-yo them back in a little bit to try and find that that happy medium i don't know but i would be dishonest if i said that i am a little nervous about the aggressive um stance that the fed is taking on raising interest rates yeah and, and, and also note here you and i are giving our opinion a sure. lot of times we we give a very informed opinion, an experienced opinion. Um, I, I, I'm going to stop short of saying I have an informed, experienced opinion about this. 
I'm just giving you my opinion, what I think is going to happen. And what I also think is interesting here, and we're not going to get political, but I think that the stimulus packages that we had to try to solve the immediate challenges of the pandemic, um, they're going to have an impact. And now they had a positive impact, a very positive impact as they happened, right? Mm -hmm. They kept the economy afloat. They kept uh, food in people's mouths. Um, but I think what we're seeing is, in, in, to some degree, that stimulus overheated the economy mm -hmm. where demand was uh, outpacing supply. And then you throw in the supply chain issues on top of that. Uh, you look at the student loan uh, moratorium in, in, in going on. And now there's this escalated talk once again of student loan forgiveness. Dame, all of that has also contributed to people having extra income to pump into the economy, which is demand side. Uh, and then you have the supply chain issues. So what, I, what I'm saying is a lot of the things that we did as a, as a country to solve the immediate financial crisis that was March and April of 2020 is partially why we're in this situation now. There will be no shortage of studies and papers written on what we've just experienced in the last three years uh, going forward. It, it will be studied uh, and ad nauseum to, to try and figure out how economic policy uh, can influence and impact um, a society at large based yeah, on what we've done. Yeah, that's a good point because, and the other thing is here, what I'm not saying is it was a mistake because I don't feel like I have uh, enough credibility to say it's a mistake. I, I think this is a really incredibly complicated issue mm -hmm. that when it gets too political and it gets too polarized, what one side will say is it wasn't a mistake and the other side will say it is a mistake. And I, I'm, not, I'm not sure it's that simple. This reminds me of doing a home repair project. Like when I... I made a, a change on a toilet valve a few months ago and the, the problem grows, the project grows because you solve one issue and then there's a, a consequence to solving that issue and then it keeps going and it escalates. And yeah, maybe somewhere along the way you did something less than ideal, but then you're just simply solving the problem in front of you and it's hard to figure out what the third problem down the road is going to be. How many trips to uh, the, the uh, local hardware? Okay. Four. Yeah. So it, it's a pretty good metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> like there, there were four. Um, while we're on it, I know we, you and I had planned about talking about um, which uh, age band mm -hmm. will be affected the most via this recession. And, and we can certainly do that. We have a couple minutes left. I, I, I also want us to weigh in briefly with another prediction of since the student loan topic has heated up so much, once again, student loan forgiveness. And you, you and I are nerds, so we've been slacking each other all week, making predictions while our coworkers look on and, I don't know, disbelieve. <laughs> you and I are like, no, 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 no. This yeah. is what's going to happen. I want you to I want you to lay out not what you think should happen because we don't have time for that. I want to know what do you think is going to happen. If you want me to go first, I would be glad to. Um, I, <clears throat> I think there will be um, $10,000 of forgiveness uh, offered. Uh, because that's what the president has has uh, said he's been interested in from the jump. I think it's going to be ten grand. I think it will be ten grand. Um, and I think, I think, <laughs> this is, I'm trying not to get out of hand here. I think it's great that that will provide some sense of relief 
to people who have less than $10,000 of student loans. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. the point of forgiveness is to clear up an obligation. Mm -hmm. um, but based on the average student loan balance, what is likely to happen is A, uh, it's not gonna provide a lot of relief to those people. Um, it's not gonna change their payment. They're not even making a payment right now. So the, it doesn't solve that cash flow issue. Now that could arguably cool off the economy a little bit, which, which is sort of nice when the student loan mm -hmm. payments start back up. Sure. I know this sounds terrible, but when student loan payments start back up, that's gonna help cool down the economy in a mm -hmm. good way. Final thing I'll note though, it's just gonna increase the price of college. That's all it's gonna do. Um, so I'm not being skeptical. I'm just saying, I agree with you. I think it's gonna be 10,000 bucks. I think it could be a little bit more based on income-based repayment but we will see. Coming up after the break, should you choose an, a time to retire or a date? That's next. I'm Pete the Planner. With the two seconds that I tried to explain what that segment was about <laughs> coming up, I missed the mark and said something that didn't make sense. But I was already four seconds over. Alas, who cares? Apologize to our person at the radio station. You know... I understand why people who are really into politics and, and, and really associate with a particular side of the aisle love to get behind these economic arguments. Like I, I, I totally get it where I always sort of get lost listening to the arguments though, is that I think people oversimplify the solutions to very complicated problems. And then that's where it just becomes really insincere. I understand and I, I believe that everybody wants the right solution. They they want um they they want what's best for the country as they see it. And the problem is is we see things vastly differently depending on what part of the country you live in, what your background is, uh and, and that's part of this whole process. And as frustrating as politics is for many people myself included it's a necessary evil uh, at this point and so i am very happy to let people who are interested in doing those things <laughs> do them and i will stay the heck out and just complain from the sidelines in small groups see i i think there should be some level of student loan forgiveness like i i am in support of that um i'm not sure what it looks like but i also feel that the timing of this does suggest that a decision needs to be made in this area prior to an election. Hmm. And I, I, I like where you know, I think Mitt Romney came out this week and suggested that and, and people are all like clutching their pearls like, no, it's not. It's like, you know, you can agree, you can think that there should be student loan um, forgiveness like I do and also acknowledge that the reason it needs to get done is because it was a campaign promise that needs to be delivered on. Like, the, the, you know, they're not a mutually exclusive thing. Both things can be true. So that being said, that doesn't make me skeptical of student loan forgiveness, but I am also willing to acknowledge that they go hand in hand and I'm not mad about it. I just, it's okay. You can see, you don't have to line up with one side's argument all the time you you can feel both ways it's okay that's not what twitter tells me oh twitter let's not start on that i think uh 
I think forgiveness is an option. I think there are other options that I would love to see pursued more vigorously. Um, you know, eliminating the interest rate, uh, eliminating accrued interest on student loans right now, letting people just pay back principal. But all of those potential ideas and solutions don't do anything to stem the, the root of the, the cause. And until we can figure out how to get um, the cost of the education in control, we're going to be revisiting this process, uh, the, this topic, every, well, maybe every election cycle. Yay. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I, I think the perfect solution involves waiving interest rates, keeping them at zero, restarting repayments, um, and then eliminating accrued interest. I, I also think... You know, the the model that public service loan forgiveness provides is where you make 120 payments based on income-based repayment, and then the remainder of your balance is waived. I think that's a really good general option for everyone. The problem, naturally, is that there's no immediate relief for anyone with any of those solutions, mm -hmm. and so they just don't seem appealing. People want immediate relief. Um, good bad or otherwise and and they're not going to get it with what with what i think solves the problem yeah um, capitalized interest i think should be eliminated from this whole process too i, I think that's just it's horrible it, it, predatory and it, it, it needs to be done with immediately you know I, I was at a nerd festival at this convention in phoenix for people who love to talk about this sort of stuff and i i was talking to a guy afterwards and he and i were talking about okay so let's say we're talking about retirement. So let's say you got someone in their fifties or sixties now that has not created stability in the early parts of their career. So now they are unstable heading into retirement. How do you, how do you solve that? Well, that's an interesting question, but I said, I'm going to dismiss that. I'm going to park it to the side now. <laughs> and I'm going to say this, that the issue to some degree involves social security because so many people are running to the finish line at age 62 or age 67, mm -hmm. simply by moving the finish line to 72 for like any, like think about this, anyone who's currently not born. And last week we discussed whether that makes you dead or simply not born. <laughs> that all fits together. The show, let's say, let's say there's someone watching the show right now that has a baby in their um, being, I don't know how this works. I don't know what parts to talk about. Let's say you are pregnant. I believe that's the term. Yeah. How hard would it be for Congress right now to just agree to just be like 72 is retirement age for anyone minus years old? That's all you have to do. <laughs> like that alone begins to address this. It's such low hanging fruit. It's shocking. And that's not shocking, but it, it, it's, it's mind numbing as to how something like that that is so obvious and just simply based in math and not politics and doesn't affect anyone who's alive, why why can't even they get there uh, of like beginning to solve the issue of retirement by simply moving back Social Security age? I, I, I don't understand that. Well, because that would cost them votes, Pete. Man. We're not going to talk politics. Okay. <laughs> oh, what are we doing here? Can um, Okay, so describe this so I don't sound... Yeah, so like I found it, it's more beneficial for okay. someone to think about retiring during a window of time versus um, a more narrow period of time, okay. whether it's a specific day or a quarter or a year. Windows often uh, offer more um, flexibility and confidence in your retirement. In three, two.
back on the Pete the Planner Show. Dame, oh, a wise man once said, it is better to target a window of time for retirement as opposed to a very specific date. That wise man is is you. Uh, this is your topic. And I thought, yeah, let, let's talk about this because back in the day when I was a financial advisor and when you were a financial advisor, what people tended to do was to try to like, let's choose a date to work backward off of. Uh, all right, August 23rd, 2031. Let's work backward off that date. And there's some sense in that because it becomes a math equation. And yeah, behavior is involved and habits are involved. But from the outset, it's math. It is like, okay, well, this is how much you got to put in at this interest rate. And this is how much you can distribute. And and, and there you go. Uh, what you're suggesting, Dame, is maybe there's a better way, not choosing August 23rd to 2031. But what what sort of window are we talking about? How big's the window that you're suggesting? I would suggest that, that window could be as, you know, as big as three years. To, okay. to account for any number of things could account for uh, a change in um, expenses in your household could uh, account for poor market conditions could account for uh, a need for a few extra dollars in those retirement funds to come up may maybe need to delay social security a little bit uh, any number of, of factors could influence when you want to retire and when it's optimal for you to retire the whole financial planning industry is based off of <clears throat> finding a, a, a specific day for somebody to retire. What that does though, is, you know, sets you up to have to always consistently go back and look at, is it actually feasible during that time? What I haven't seen and what I would love to see developed, uh, make a note of this Pete is that we make could, uh, find, uh, get a, develop a piece of software that says, all right, uh, you are now 50 years old. You want to retire sometime between the ages of 64 and 67 and then start looking at all the different parameters, what your social security benefits are going to be, what your, uh, estimated, um, retirement funds will be based on any number of scenarios, uh, adverse, uh, sequence of returns or just normal markets. Um, health conditions, you know, how long you, your expected life or your life expectancy is going to be after you retire at any one of those dates and throw just all sorts of variables at it. And yes, there will be a ton of data to go through, but you'll be able to make really, really wise decisions. If I retire at 64 and figure that, um, you know, the economy is a little, little skittish right now. What happens if we have two really bad years after I retire versus what if I just work those two years and delay social security two years add to um, my retirement funds, not draw down on my retirement assets. How different do things work if I just work a little bit longer and change my retirement plans? What, what I like about this idea is that let, let's say you do it the old school way, which is August 23rd to 2031. You're choosing a date and that date uh, is approaching and the market <clears throat> is not doing great and inflation is high and you make the decision you know what? That's not going to happen. Then there's this sort of purgatory feeling of, well, when is the right time? And it, it, and it I would think it becomes all consuming, right? You can't, mm -hmm. sure. it feels like a loss. It feels like a failure. This thing that you've saved for 40 years, all of the sudden you're chasing. Whereas if you said, Hey, my window is anywhere from August 23rd, 2031 mm -hmm. to October 15th, 2034, mm -hmm. right? And so that way, when you approach, all you're doing is like, you know what? It's not going to be the earlier part. It's going to be the later part. 
uh, I think it takes a lot of pressure off someone. So I think, I think I'm, I think I'm down for this. I like this three-year window. I'm wondering where it goes askew. Does it go askew via procrastination where a person, because they've got that window says, well, I got a little bit more time. Maybe we're going to, you know, uh, increase our lifestyle a little bit more now because we can always delay retirement. What's the, what's the downside of this? Potentially. I mean, you could run into, um, some issues, you know, whether it's procrastination, whether maybe, maybe you experience those, that sequence of adverse returns during that three-year period. And now you're, now you're really stuck. Your three-year period just became a six-year period, but you'd rather be in that position rather than having retired and having to re-enter the workforce. Um, I will note, uh, full disclosure, picking a date still works for one group of people. Can you guess who that group of people is, Pete? People with a pension. Yep, pension and social security. If that's going to fund your retirement, you can still pick a date. It doesn't matter. You're gonna you're gonna have your your income delivered to you, regardless of what happens externally. So if you're in that position, go forth and pick a date. But everybody else who has variability in their retirement projections, uh, income, expenses, health, whatever the case may be, do yourself a favor and. Don't put the pressure on yourself of picking uh, a, a specific date. Leave it more flexible. Yeah, you know, we, we've we've visit, revisited this idea over the years on this show of the hardest thing you will ever do financially is to retire successfully, and it, and it's a lot because of this very conversation. Because as you're approaching a single date or even a window, and inflation's hot, the market's not. Um, you know, health conditions. It, it is so hard. And so what I find people do, and this is anecdotal, but I'm sure the data supports it, is people say, this is too hard to think about and to plan through. So we'll just see what happens. Mm -hmm. Here we go. Dame, what percentage of people adopt the cross the fingers, let's see what happens because this is so complicated. Like, let's say... Uh, Working adults, what percentage of people adopt the, uh, we'll figure it out. What percentage? It's a really interesting question because you know there's tons of people who retired just that very way. That's true. And, and in, in fact, a lot of them are probably successful. They figure it out as they go and they adjust their, their expenses and, and, and do the best they can without the guidance of a financial, a trained financial advisor. But what percentage of them do that? I bet it's higher. I bet it's higher than you and I would guess in reality. Yeah. And, and I think to your point, which is is smart here, it's just because people adopt the, we'll figure it out as we go. doesn't, that's not necessarily negative because there are people that can pull that off. I think, and once again, the number of people who can pull that off are different from the people who think they can pull it mm -hmm. off. I would say 65% of people 65 to 70% of people don't actually work backwards off of a retirement date or window. I think they just throw money in the ocean and see what happens. That might, that's probably a fair, uh, fair estimate. The, the one thing that I will throw into this conversation that I, I think fits, I, I read an article it wasn't an article. It was a Twitter thread. Oh my gosh. Oh, don't, don't ruin the show. Uh, Come on. They were talking about the term retirement and whether or not that would survive going forward or whether it's going to change to something else. Hmm. Uh, and they see the, the common theme was financial independence is, you yeah. know, you often hear it in fire uh, yeah. or, or, but 
uh, it made me think that might be a better way to think about that period of our lives going forward instead of uh, just simply retiring, hanging up the the work gloves or the the tie or whatever uh, you you're gonna you know, walk away from, but just establishing financial independence uh, because that could happen at any any period of your life. And maybe you hit the lottery or develop an app or come up with a new plastic end on a shoestring. I don't know, but uh, that may be the the better term for us to think about going forward instead of just uh, old school retirement. Yeah, that, that idea has been creeping up for the better part of 15 years. And what's weird about it, I, I, I tend to agree with you um, in most cases, especially about this, it still hasn't caught on. It, it is yeah. so hard to reframe. You know, I was I keep talking about this conference I was at this week. The idea that we can't even reframe the 401k correctly over the last 40 years is proof how hard this is. The 401k was created in 1980 by a retired benefits consultant by the name of Ted Benna. And the whole point of it was to give highly compensated people a means to save even more for retirement. And the only way he could pull that off logistically was to have lower income people also contribute to the plan so it didn't become top heavy. So 401k wasn't even designed for the masses to retire. It was designed for highly compensated people. And we've not been able to reframe that. So it's with that little piece of history, we had to a break. Coming up after said break, biggest waste of money of the week and the news right here on the Pete the Planner Show. I'm Pete the Planner. If, uh, if Ted Benna didn't own a billboard somewhere with his name, his picture, the name of his company, and a slogan, Benefits, on yeah. it somewhere, I don't know how that never came to fruition. He was a, uh, a retired benefits consultant in Philadelphia. So the story goes, in 1978, there was a congressman from Oregon, uh, Senator, Senator Ullman, can't think of his first, Albert, maybe, Albert Ullman, and he created sort of the structure for the 401k within tax code. And around 1980, Ted Benna was looking for a way to, to have one of his clients be able to, you know, throw additional fringe benefits at, at their top people. And, and so he found this piece of tax code and he, and he didn't manipulate it. He just interpreted it in a way that created the 401k. And, and so at the same time, boy, this is not interesting to anyone but I find it interesting. <laughs> in 1974, there was um, a, a change in uh, how pensions were really thought about. So between 1974 and 1980, these two factors of the piece of legislation, which is sort of known as ERISA, 1974, and 1980, Ted Benna's 401k discovery, that essentially ended pensions because companies said, oh, we can shift the onus of of retirement planning away from the company and to the employee and we'll make a contribution and our highly compensated people can even have more benefits. And so that was sort of the six year short evolution. And what we have not figured out in the last 42 years is how to successfully retire people in that situation because we went from certainty, a pension was certainty, and now with a 401k, there is no certainty. And just by its name, a pension is a defined benefit plan. You define what the benefit will be. That is certainty. And a 401k is a defined contribution plan where the, there's nothing certain about it other than there is going to be a contribution made or there is not. And so 
you, you talk about trying to reframe financial independence and retirement. I agree, but we can't even reframe the 401k. That was my stomach and your mic, you're muted. Annuities solve all of this, Pete. <laughs> but can you hear my stomach? No. Oh, good. Isn't it weird every once in a while it seems like I know what I'm talking about? You know, it's like, it's like wow, he, he must really be tired because he did not make a joke and he just like dropped knowledge. Stream of consciousness and you're just letting it go. It takes me to be exhausted to be serious. Good to know. Yeah. Um, okay, let's do the show. In th- oh. mm, mm, mm. three, two, one. This week's biggest waste of money of the week right here on the Pete the Planner Show is the Pixie Selfie Drone. Every event is now not complete without an honorary. What? That's the copy? Okay, Dame, I'm going to read this again. This is, <laughs> this is the worst piece of copy I've ever read in my life. Okay, you ready? Mm-hmm. Every event is now not complete without an honorary. Period. That's got to be a typo, right? That's got to be a typo. Every event is now not complete. You know what they forgot? What? Selfie. Honorary selfie. Even every event is now not complete is is a horrible sentence. It's horrible. Yeah, absolutely. But they forgot a word in there. Snap's new pixie helps capture the moments outside of arm's reach. The easy-to-use miniature flying drone features a built-in camera and four preset flight paths. With the push of a button, the drone will float, uh, orbit, follow you around, Mm -hmm. snapping selfies as you go. After the flight, Pixie will wirelessly transfer pictures to your Snapchat memories where you can edit them to your liking before posting. It's rechargeable battery, can run up to eight flights, but be, can, can be paired with multiple batteries for extended use. Dame, what do you guess the Pixie selfie drone costs? And so it's not controlled by anybody. It's just a push a button and it does it by itself, right? Yeah. Um, I'm going to guess that's um, $229.99. Dame. Dame, are you looking stuff up? No, it was one of my stories that I had. It was? Yeah. You're you're kidding me. No. You want me to read what I was going to say? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. Yeah, go ahead. Technology has once again discovered a new way to replace the outstretched arm. Did you write that copy? No, I wish I did, though. That's great. Uh, On Thursday, Snap unveiled a selfie game changer in the form of a yellow mini drone called Pixie. The quarter pound Pixie retails for $229.99 and promises to be your very own personal flying Michael Bay. The gadget launches out of a user's palm and travels along one of four preset flight paths, capturing video and still images wirelessly, transferring them to Snapchat memories. In terms of battery life, Pixie's not equipped for Atlantic crossings. On a full charge, it needs to be plugged in after five to eight flights. Snap's not planning on a pivot to uh, unmanned flight, though the company did say it's selling a limited number of units while supplies last in the U.S. and France. Do you think the selfie will ever die? Do you think it's a trend that will die? Nope. Man, we're so vain. Pete the Planner thinks selfies are vain. I get my marketing team on that so we can get that out on social. What's in the news this week? It's one of the most recognizable outfits in American movie history. 
the blue and white checked gingham dress of a young Judy Garland wore mm. as Dorothy in the classic 1939 movie The Wizard of Oz. For decades, one of the versions of the dress Garland wore in the movie was assumed lost at Catholic University of America, where it had been given to someone in the drama department in the early 1970s. But the clearing out of some office clutter last year led to the finding of the dress in an old shoebox. And now it's headed to the auction block. The costume goes up for sale at Bonhams uh, in May 24th in Los Angeles, where the pre-sale estimate is... $2.5 million. 800 to $1.2 million. If it was an mm. NFT, it'd probably be double that. You uh, know... The uh, you know the NFL wide receiver for the Chiefs about ten years ago by the name of Dwayne Bow. Yes, the greatest fantasy football league team name of all time was somewhere over Dwayne Bow. Mm-hmm. And so every time I think of Judy Garland, I think about somewhere over Dwayne Bow. Pete, what's one piece of Hollywood memorabilia you would love to have? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I got to think it's going to be something from like Star Wars or Top Gun. Maybe. Or, uh, you know, my favorite movie, though, is Spies Like Us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the best scene in Spies Like Us with Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase is when they're sitting for their GLG 20 exam to become diplomats. <laughs> and Chevy Chase comes in with a fake arm and a sling and he has an eye patch. Yeah. And so I would like the eye patch or the sling from Spies Like Us. Very oddly specific. What do you think? Uh, I went with Hollywood in general, so I went with a TV show that um, I will still pull up on Netflix on occasion. I haven't recently, but uh, Magnum P.I. Ooh. You want I the would, mustache trimmer? I would No, I would love to have what, that uh, 308 GTS that he uh, drove around in. There, <laughs> there were three. Just, I think you three. just want a Ferrari. That's all. No, no, no. I, I want one of those Ferraris. And uh, now they are grotesquely expensive right now but uh you know what i would settle for the helicopter that tc flew to that paint scheme on the island great show amazing you know you and i obviously the same age um it's weird that you and i could watch that show that show was for adults it wasn't for nine-year-old boys um yet we liked it so i wonder how great it is for an adult to watch you ever watch those shows with your kids like they get something out of it but you get mm-hmm. something completely di- out, different out of it i assume magnum pi was the same yeah i you know i still watch them on occasion and they are they hold up today and they, they still hold up <laughs> how uh how chauvinistic is the show like is tom Selleck like creepy in retrospect is he like is he like sexist or because you know sometimes that cool guy yeah. character can be like hey babe Come on, like, you know what I mean? Or does it? I mean, I, a, a, a little of that. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it was a period of time, man. It's like watching Blazing Saddles now. You're just like, <laughs> what? Does, does anybody admit to watching Blazing Saddles anymore? Uh, uh, what else is in the news? Uh, races and promotions at work are keeping some prospective MBA students from enrolling. Business schools that used to receive workers looking for executive training, often with their company footing the bill, are increasingly competing against companies and the job offers and bigger pay that are dangle- uh, that those companies are dangling to entice young professionals to skip school and keep working. The biggest recent wa- wage increases went to young employees, making it harder for them to walk away from work into an expensive degree for the two years it takes to go to school full-time. Pete? That's something that I don't think we had considered with all of the uh, headwinds that college enrollment faces in the coming years. Increased wages competing for MBA students wasn't on my radar. 
Yeah. I mean, the National Basketball Association, uh, as Ted said on this show, the NBA mm-hmm. stands for National, National? Basketball Association. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I did not account for that. That is, that's a little bit weird. Yeah, and I, obviously there are way more undergrads than grad students in uh, in colleges, but uh, still, it's going to take a chunk out of their bottom line, I would think. You know, I may have shared this with you earlier this year, late last year. I, I never, okay, I'm trying to choose my words here. I never personally, for mm-hmm. me, saw the value in an MBA mm-hmm. until the last year of my life. And I wish I would have, I I wish I had an MBA so bad because for me, and and this is where Mrs. Planner and I tend to, this is where she becomes especially disappointed in my perspective. I always viewed education for someone that does what I do as a means to be able to get your first job and then you make, you Mm -hmm. make your path. Right. And that's what I've sort of done. But if I had an MBA and I was able to apply that knowledge to what I do on a daily basis, I know, oh my gosh, my life would be so much easier. But I'm, I'm playing catch up, trying to learn all those things, you know? Yeah, I, I can see how that would have benefited you. Too late. Yeah, too late. I'm not going back. Yeah, I don't, I, the, <laughs> go back. I know people go back at like 44, they're like, I'm going to go and take this Harvard business course. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. No. No, that's not for me. Uh, Danza does point out something quite interesting in the comments. Slightly older than the Dons, the greatest American hero was a show that worked for adults and kids. I totally agree. And it's got one of the great, greatest theme songs, theme songs yeah, ever. Absolutely. I love that show. It was weird. And, and uh, but I, I, I really liked it. Dame, one last story. Do you have time? Yeah. Fidelity's going to put Bitcoin in their 401k plans. It's going to be kind of expensive to do it. But uh, yeah, you could put up to 20% of your 401k at Fidelity into Bitcoin. 20%? Yep. It can be lower. The companies can make it lower, but they're going to cap it at 20. Oh, boy. You know what? Oh, boy. I don't know. I mean, look, I, I, when it's all said and done, I'm just going to be this old guy that's against new trends. Like, the computers are fat. I mean, that's where I'm at. But I think putting crypto inside of a 401k is just against a fiduciary responsibility. If you're going to use 401k as a retention tool, you got to do it for younger people. That's all we have time for this week. Send you good vibes because good vibes are all that's in the budget. I'm Pete the Planner, and this certainly was something. That's just a bad idea. It's not great. Um, I'm going to go, not because I'm in a hurry, but I'm out of energy. (laughs) So, um, Dame, I don't think I'm going to talk to you until Monday. It was great seeing you. Glad you're home safe. Go to bed. I'm going to take PTO which doesn't really happen. So I'm going to go do that. Is it PTO? Shouldn't we have a policy like as a business that if you take a red eye that the next day isn't PTO? Yeah, I thought, well, we don't, do we? We had something we do about, now. We had something about traveling four days and the fifth day was off or something like that. I don't maybe. know. Anyway, but, hey, can, we, can, we, uh, can, we, can we petition to rename PTO just for you so it's Pete's time off and then everybody else uses some other acronym? DTO, Dame's time off. Yes, I mean, all no, we would. I'm not going to say I'm special enough for my own, but yeah, uh, PTO. Oh, yeah, sure. All right, y'all. Thanks for being with us. Um, eat your vegetables. I don't know. <laughs> uh, stay getting money.